text for this morning follows what have been preaching texts uh, prior, Friday evening and last evening uh, at this convention. It's in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, my text will be verses 11 through 21 uh, this morning. As you find it, and as we prepare for that reading, I'm going to ask for a little audience participation this morning. That takes a, a measure of bravery from some of you to, uh, to work with me uh, here uh, a little bit. Uh, so, but help me out. Uh, it's, it's not my native tongue, uh, first of all, but in trying to keep up with the younger generation, I'm working at trying to get familiar with the texting abbreviations. You, you know what I mean? You get the phones out and, and some young thumbs just fly over the keyboard and these texting abbreviations come and I've got to figure out what my kids and, and others are meaning. So I've been working on getting more familiar uh, with that. I want to see how you're doing. I'm going to give you just a few letters and uh, a few of you, or maybe more than a few of you, brave people, I want you to call out what these texting abbreviations mean, okay? This actually does uh, apply to where we're going with the text. We'll start easy. So LOL? Laugh out loud. There's a lot of brave people in, in Dickinson. Very good. BTW? By the way, I, I sense that I'm in the older part of the uh, <laughs> audience here. Uh, IDK? Wow. TBH? Okay, now we're getting younger. Okay. <laughs> IMHO? In my humble opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I only do IMO. I don't put the H in there ever when I, when I talk. <laughs> TTYL? Talk to you later. Excellent. So here's one that I, I didn't know until just a few months ago, and I had to find out the meaning of this abbreviation through personal embarrassment. Uh, at the hands of my children, okay? I, do any of you know what this, I didn't know what this means when this came back, TLDR. Oh, who said that? <laughs> One person, TLDR, too long, didn't read. So yes, you can, I've already told you, uh, you don't have to guess who sent that to me, it was one of my kids. So when I'm texting my kids, something I think is really important, you know? I know intuitively that if they're going to read it, it's got to be like six words or less, but I think it's really important. I want them to pay attention, and they need details because they're still my kids, right? And so pretty soon as I'm trying to, I give up on my thumbs, and I just start talk texting, and the text turns into a tome. It's got like chapter numbers to it. It just goes <laughs> on and on, all right, And because uh, they're my kids. And, uh, and when I finish, of course, I do spell check to make sure that Siri didn't inadvertently cuss on my behalf when I didn't. And I check punctuation because, well, a, a person should always check, you know, texting you don't. But I, my mother was a, a grammarian, so I, I check the, the punctuation, and I hit send, and crickets, nothing comes back, and, which isn't unusual with my kids. But just 10, 15, I don't know, half hour, and finally I get back just, sorry, Dad, TLDR. I'm like, I text back, like, what's that mean? And the text comes back, too long, didn't read, and, you know, some, you know, laughy emoji or something, <laughs> whatever. Oh, great. That's how I found out TLDR. So one last one. One last one. Uh, POV? Point of view. Very good. Very good. Actually, it's not the last one. Let, let a daily double here. See if you can figure out what I mean by this compound abbreviation. I don't know that we text this, but see if you can figure out where the, where the preacher is preaching here, where he's going uh, this morning. It's, uh, it's also the title of my message if you want to cheat and look at the uh, there, but DMC POV. 
I don't know who said that, but yeah. DMC POV, Disciple Making Church Point of View. What do we mean by that? Where's the, where's Paul, the preacher, going with Disciple Making Church Point of View? Let's look at this closing text of our Astonished by Glory Western Regional Convention theme from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, and think together on a disciple-making church's point of view. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. I'm going to pause a number of times as I read here. Sorry, uh, sound video tech. Isn't that interesting that somewhere Paul the Apostle combines fear of the Lord with persuasion of others? It's a, it's a faith-born fear. It's not abject terror. It's this regard of only the faithful can come to have this kind of fear of the Lord that always ought go hand in hand, the fear of the Lord, with the persuasion of others. I love how Lenski, the great Lutheran commentator, scholar, translates this. He says in, in his commentary on this verse, he says, we busy ourselves persuading others. Do we? We busy ourselves persuading others. The root word translated persuade here is, is pathos. It's as in Aristotle's you know, modes of, of rhetoric. It's that which, which gives itself to influence. It has to be along ethos, the, the other modes also, but, but this is the influence, the passion, the, the urging. We busy ourselves persuading others because we know what it is to fear the Lord. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, I'll pause here again. You, you remember that Festus thought the Apostle Paul was out of his mind. Jesus' relatives thought he was off his rocker. The gospel, we remember, is prior to faith, foolishness to the world. It's an offensive, foolish proposition. Going in mission to plant a church in Parker, Colorado, or in Lincoln is a foolish endeavor. How could you be so silly? Going in mission on your honeymoon to Chad is a foolish proposition, Matthias and Ellie. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love, and here comes an even more uh, even a stronger word than persuade, than pathos, for Christ's love compels us. Please time out and note here that it does not say that our love for Christ compels us. But it says the love of Christ implied for us. The love of Christ known, received, 
The love of Christ for us compels us. By the way, this word compel is the same word used other places in the New Testament. When it talks about crowds of people following Jesus, there are a few times when it it talks about them pressing in on him. This word compels means to press in on every side. Indeed, it doesn't mean that we drum up such love for Jesus that we go out and serve him, whether it's pouring coffee or or witnessing to our our neighbor joining Jesus in his mission. It means that his all-encompassing, all-enveloping, all-pressing in on us from all sides by word and sacrament and the gathering of God's people, that that all-compelling, encompassing love for us is what compels us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And don't miss this, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live, and I do see a number of pastors out here today, and not just for pastors, but for all of you. Might I just say that the emphasis in the Church of the Lutheran Brethren forever has been in an unlimited atonement that Christ died for all. And however after that we speak in words of reconciliation and justification and forgiveness, we we have to make sure that while we communicate an unlimited atonement, Christ died for all, there is this sobering reality that only some live. That that's somehow how we speak of justification and, and, and is always in combination with faith. There is an unlimited atonement, but there is a limited reception by faith of forgiveness. Our statement of faith leaves no other option. It says, each one who thus believes is instantly forgiven and credited with Christ's righteousness. In the Lutheran brethren, we always speak of justification and forgiveness, always in the view of faith. He died for all, only some live. He died for all, only some live. Let's never, ever lose that. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised for them. So from now on, here it comes finally. I'm a little slow on the trigger today. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly, do you see it, point of view. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, another strong word, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Okay, there we go. What a text. What a text. It, um, it preaches itself, but I, I better earn my pay today, uh, today and preach. Well, what do we know about the point of view of a disciple-making church in this extraordinary scripture passage? Well, first of all, from this vantage point we have as the church, what vantage point? The vantage point of the cross. We have this cross that that is there looming behind us in history and is above us always. We, we have this vantage point of the cross behind us and above us, and we have this hope of glory, astonished by glory. We have this hope of glory ever before us. From that vantage point of the, the cross before us and the hope of, of glory ahead of us, from this vantage point, we have this unique point of view. We have this calling of being joined to Jesus in his mission. We have this sense of being left here with a purpose. If we truly have a Father in heaven who loves us in that all-compelling love and wants all good things for us, he would have wanted us all home with him in heaven yesterday. Except he has this purpose from this vantage point of the cross before us and the hope of glory ahead of us, He has given us this point of view, this purpose of being here. The only reason our Father leaves us in this hard, broken world is this compelling calling in which we have an otherworldly point of view of other people. We have an otherworldly point of view of Jesus Himself And we actually have an otherworldly point of view of our very selves. There you have the sermon outline. I love how the great apostle says in verses 16 and 17, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Since when? Since we came by faith to see the cross of Jesus behind, above us, and the hope of glory before us. We simply see people, other people, differently from that point of view. It's an interesting thought and an expression to regard someone from a worldly point of view. It's quite a different point of view of people from the one that the gospel gives us. I would guess that I'm not the only one in this room that sometimes admits and feels that sense of having a worldly point of view of the people we meet in our lives. It's easy to slip into that, isn't it? I, uh, I'm going to ask you to forgive alliteration here. I, I grew up where alliteration and preaching was a bigger thing than it is now. I, I don't do a lot of it, but for me it'd be kind of comes like a, a, a mind puzzle, like it's, it's wordle for preachers or something to see the different ways I can kind of fit in a thought. I mean, what, what's a worldly point of view of, of other people? Uh, I struggle with it. I, sometimes I, I took the letter C, by the way. You'll figure that out. Sometimes you view other people from a worldly point of view as combatants. They're, they're the enemy. Uh, when I see a stranger, especially sometimes in this post-Christendom time and the pandemic and all the, the political kind of tension out there, it's just easy to meet a stranger and assume that they're the enemy, that they're someone different from me, they're someone that opposes me, they're someone who thinks differently than I do, votes differently than, than I do, stands for something else than, than I do. They, they come from a combatant religion or culture or lifestyle. It's so easy to meet strangers As soon as we walk out this door and assume they're a combatant, sometimes we see people as a congestant. You know, there's an awful lot of people, maybe not as many people in North Dakota than other places in the world, but still sometimes stores and roads and our lives just get plugged up with people. And sometimes it's not just the sheer volume of people. 
It's the problems and the stresses and everything that they bring. People assume I'm way more extroverted than I am. I'm kind of midline. Too much people and I'm, you know, I need, I need a, that's part of why I golf is I need wide open green spaces. But it's easy to look at strangers, at others, and sometimes they're not even strangers and see them as congestants of our lives. Sometimes related to combatants, we see other people from a worldly point of view as competitors. You know, we always have to beat the next guy, whether it's to the intersection, whether it's in work and business and school, competition with your neighbor over how your yard looks or how, you know, how exciting and glossed over your social media posts look of what, what beautiful vacations or, you know, grandchildren you have or, or whatever. We're, we're comparing and, and competing. I guess with, with competition goes comparison. We are ever having a worldly point of view of other people comparing ourselves, measuring our value, measuring our success, measuring our appearance by what we perceive of people around us. It's a worldly point of view to have them as combatants, congestants, competitors, comparisons. How about a worldly point of view of other people where we view them simply as concrete? Uh, people are, are just that which we walk over to get to the place we need to go. It's a utilization of people. Here's a little stretch of my alliteration, but how often in this world is there a worldly point of view of others where you can look at someone else's daughter or son as carne asada, just a, a piece of meat, this dehumanizing point of view that sees fellow humanity as something no more than the eyes to devour. We view some people categorically as criminals. Sometimes we look at others and we actually worship them as false Christ. In, in all these and other ways, the Apostle Paul says something has transformed in a disciple-making church in which the fear of the Lord, this faith, combines with a sense of mission that the Apostle Paul says we no longer see others from a worldly point of view. Is there any repentance needed present in this room or this preacher for viewing others from a worldly point of view? A disciple-making church is persuaded, is transformed and compelled by the love of Christ to see others in a new way as the beloved creation of the Father who he seeks to be recreated in Christ as brothers and sisters in the gospel. Oh God, help us to see others in an otherworldly point of view. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What what does that look like? You know, our family um, has a, a picture that's become a little iconic. A few years ago, it might have been around the last regional convention where we were visiting churches, uh, the Billings Church having their anniversary, and then we were on our way to Bismarck. B and I drove through the Black Hills coming back. And, and how many of you know the, the wonderful you know, wild donkeys of Custer State Park? Have you ever seen them? They're not wild. I, I'm here to tell you, they're not wild. You slow down, stop, open your window, they'll have your head right up in your car. We got this picture of me just kind of being, you know, overcome by a donkey sticking his head in, in, the, in the window. What, what does it look like to have the, the fear of the Lord uh, move us in, in persuasion? Uh, somebody combined a, a, a that. This isn't me in the video, but they found this, this video. Can I just tell you, this is, this is not what godly persuasion of the gospel should look like. I love this little clip. Excuse me, sir. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you have time to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Hey, don't run from the Lord. Where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I just love the book. Can you play that again? That's too good to just play, play, play once. Play, play that again. This is not what godly persuasion looks like in the gospel. Excuse me, sir. Excuse me. Do you have time to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Hey, don't run from the Lord. Where are you going? <laughs> I actually got that from a, a friend in the, our Pacific. We're going to see uh, Mario Duaron and uh, probably later today or tomorrow. That's not what it means to try to persuade a, a man, most likely. It doesn't mean that we're obnoxious or, or pushy or argumentative. But as we reflect the love and truth of Jesus and combine our story with their story and Christ's story, still is this reality that we view other people no longer from a worldly point of view. And the fear of the Lord moves us. It compels us to try persuade others in Christ. We not only have a different point of view of others, our text says, but a disciple-making church has an otherworldly point of view of Jesus himself. Look what the Apostle Paul says next in verse 16 of our text. We regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. A disciple-making church's point of view, even of Jesus, has changed. It's changed. What do you suppose it means to regard Jesus from a worldly point of view? Well, that can mean that, that people see Jesus merely as a man, merely as a prophet. They see Jesus as a good model uh, of morality. Maybe they don't even see Jesus as that. Maybe they just have a worldly point of view of Jesus where they, they see him as a fairy tale. They see him as a fake. They might, like Saul before he became Paul, have a point of view of Jesus that they see him as the enemy. But might I suggest that there can be another kind of worldly point of view that is very common in the church and among believers. Ironically here, a worldly point of view creeps in and sometimes so very subtly, and that is when the church becomes so yawningly familiar with the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas and Easter and the cross, that it's kind of familiarity breeds contempt. A worldly point of view of Jesus can come when the story of Jesus becomes a common and boring story to us because it's been a story that's been with us for our whole lives. You sometimes find this in yourself, not pressed in on every side by the real and present Jesus and his love for you, but really your point of view of Jesus has become dull and bored and familiar. The story of Good Friday and Easter of cross and heaven and forgiveness has become an old, old story. Some of you, I, I know that I like a little game uh, played out on a tightly mowed green lawn, uh, chasing a little white ball uh, down that, that lawn. And uh, sometimes, and, and a, a few in the room can attest to this reality, just even from Friday, sometimes my little ball goes off the short little green grass into the taller green grass and then into the brown brush and, and, and worse. And, and that, and partly for that reason, there is one club in my bag that gets used more than any other club. And uh, they call it a pitching wedge, and it's a club that I turn to uh, when I'm in trouble uh, often, when I'm in the rough, I'm in a tough situation, when circumstance and malady have gotten the better of my ability, and I turn to that pitching wedge, and I use it a lot. It's in my hands a lot, that, that pitching wedge. As a matter of fact, I use it so much. I am so familiar with that pitching wedge, if I don't watch it, the grip on that club gets worn smooth. And when that happens, there's this verbiage in the golf world 
that says when you, when you, you look at a club that's been overused, there's something that needs to happen to that club. You need to have it be... You need to have it be... Regripped. Regripped. Might I suggest, especially for those of you that have grown up in the church, Sunday by Sunday, communion service by communion service, worship song by worship song, sermon by sermon, that the very thing that can have a dulling effect is the very gift that God gives us as we gather on the Sabbath at a time of rest by the word and sacrament here to receive is this perpetual need of God's people to be re-gripped by the love and story of Jesus. That we not slip into having an, a worldly point of view of the Savior himself. God help the Church of the Lutheran Brethren. God help this congregation and, re, and region ever by Sabbath and word and prayer and sacrament and the gathering of the body to be re-gripped by the love and truth of Jesus himself. And so, dear church and region, from the vantage point of the cross above and the astonishment of of glory being before us and the all-compelling love of Christ as a disciple-making church, not only are we called to have a different point of view of others, a re-gripped, compelling point of view of Jesus, but also as a disciple-making church, this lastly, we are called to have a transformed, otherworldly point of view of our very selves. An otherworldly point of view of our very selves. Maybe there's two parts to this in the text. This is kind of a, a, a quick part at the, at the end here. The text calls us to have a transformed view of ourselves in our own standing, first of all, in Christ. It says in verse 16, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And look what comes next. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God, through the apostle, is calling us to know this about yourself. If you are in Christ, if by repentance and faith you are counted in Christ, in his righteousness, in his promise of forgiveness and salvation. It says you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has and is coming. We are what Paul here refers to as being in Christ. I love the expression in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ. So while, yes, there is a spiritual reality where Christ comes to live in us, And that's a wonderful and needed thing. And there is a work going on by the Holy Spirit when Christ is in us, gradually moving, working Christ-likeness, forming a lifelong, incomplete process of sanctification more and more, two steps ahead, sometimes three back, but, but always this process moving forward. Here, this is not what is being talked about so much as this other reality, not talking about Christ in us, but us being in Christ. Here there's a completely whole new person in God's eyes. When a person is in Christ, the old view of our very selves must go. It says the old is gone. The the verb tense here is an aorist that means a completed action. It's it's done. The old is, is finished. It's history. It's the end of the story. The book is closed, signed, sealed, delivered, tossed into the deepest ocean. Your old self, your old guilt, 
The old is gone. Over my years as a pastor, I have heard all kinds of people in great distress with griefs and secrets and shame over a terrible decision, over an undoable action, over the taking of an unborn life, over the breaking of a promise, over the violation of a trust, over the sacrificing of a virtue. And to each one, I have had the honor of being able to tell them the gospel in Christ, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, she is a new creation. The old is gone. The old has gone, the new has come. And the new has come is a different verb form. It's an active verb form. It means, yes, the new life in Christ has come, and it's always coming. It's the, it's the language of Narnia. It's further up and further in. The new has come, but each day, each moment, each walk with the Savior is this newness that's brimming and full of life. It's still coming. In Christ's life is new. It is an inexhaustible newness to explore and never tire from. As, you, as we live in this newness, we never find the end of it. It's the breathless image of adventure, never plumbing the depth of this new life that Christ has called us to. If anyone is in Christ, old is gone. And this newness is ever, it has come and is ever coming. Ah, don't we want that? To be found in Christ, I think it relates even perhaps a bit with Pastor Scott's sermon last night, this idea, not only that God is with us, but that we look forward to this being with God. We are in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. And here's the, the corollary part of this change point of view of ourself, the second part of it that spills out of this newness. Here's this new purpose in being found, being found with this newness and being left on this earth, this point of view of ourselves when we are joined to Jesus in his mission. And so the passage arrives at this promise. In verse 18 through 20, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation and we are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Can I just say to us, the Church of the Lutheran Brethren, to the Western region, to this church uh, congregation, Living Word, this is the calling that we have. And it's not just a calling of obligation. Several years ago, I was in conversation with a, a very good friend of mine, our, our missionary in Taiwan, Ethan Christofferson. He's a good friend. We, we grad, Roger and I were together with Ethan in seminary, graduated 35 years ago. How did that happen 35 years ago? Wow. Uh, but I asked Ethan once, I said, Ethan, do you hear Acts 1.8, that statement, you shall be my witnesses? And do you hear the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, go make disciples? Do you hear that as law? Do you hear that as a command only, or do you hear that as gospel? And if you know Ethan, he's a very thoughtful guy. He doesn't give a quick answer. Uh, he thought for a while, and, and he said, I think it's both. I think it's both, law and gospel. Church, as, as we are such a, a law-loving and inclined people, I think we're so inclined to hear our mission only in the imperative command of, you will be my witnesses. You go and make disciples. And there is that element of that. There is, a, there is this sense of this is our calling. 
But we can't miss out on the heart of this is this transformed view of ourselves that when we are hemmed in by this all-compelling love of Christ on all sides, it makes these words as much or more words of promise as words of command. They are as predictive as they are imperative. It's not just, you will be my disciples, you go make disciples, but it is this predictive promise of, you will be my witnesses. You will go and be a disciple-making people. We as a people are people who always hear promise in the imperative. And so whether it's Acts 1-8 or the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we need to remember that this is much as much about Jesus in us saying, I promise you that this is the reality that I am working. You will be my witnesses. You will go and make disciples. We read verses like John chapter 15, and Jesus says, When the Helper comes whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Oh, we believe that. Help us, Lord, believe that. This changes our point of view of our very selves. And so I love how this text concludes. It brings us to this promise alongside of the imperative of God's mission. And the text concludes, it's as if this great apostle Paul, who is teaching the church about their point of view of of others and of Jesus and the mission that we have, it's like he slips from being a teacher right into being an evangelist. He moves from the didactic to the declarative in the gospel. It's like he can't help himself of sharing the good news even with the people before him that he is teaching. It's like he thinks in his head, there's probably somebody here who needs to hear the gospel for themselves again. And quite certainly he expects that there are people present who maybe have not yet come by repentance and faith to being this new person, this new creation in Christ. Paul knows that we're never only ever uh, certainly preaching just to the choir. He'd probably roll our eyes at old debates we've had in the church about seeker services and seeker sensitive. He always knows there are people out there who must hear and need to hear the good news and those who have not yet believed. And so I love how Paul just slips from his teaching didactic voice to the voice of an evangelist at the end as he ties a glorious gospel ribbon on this extraordinary text. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to us. He's teaching the church. And then he just says, so we implore you. And I this morning implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God, my friend. If you are not reconciled to God, be reconciled to God by repentance and faith, even today. At this altar call of of the communion table, God calls and invites you to trust him, to believe him for salvation. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for you, for us, so that in him you, we, might become the righteousness of God. Father God, may you help us today to believe your otherworldly view of others, of yourself, and of ourselves and the mission you have given us. And might you in this day as well through this word and by this sacrament bring us again or in newness to be reconciled to you by faith. Let the old be gone.
and the new come. In Jesus' name, amen.